Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer and presenter Gráinne McPolan tells the story of the women who left Ireland from the 1950s onwards to train and work as nurses in England in Angels of Mercy. When I arrived in London in 1985, I realised that I was part of a flowing stream of girls who had been making this same journey to work as nurses in England for several years. I came to realise these women were a central pillar in the National Health Service and always wanted to explore their story. Mary Hazard made that journey in 1952. She was only 17. Well, I think I wanted to flee the nest. Indeed, something far more pressing was driving her to leave home and family at such a tender age. I wanted to get away from the nuns, basically. That's why uh, my parents wanted me to train as a nurse in Ireland. But I thought it would be going from the frying pan into the fire with the nuns. If you started nursing in Ireland, you were with the nuns all the time. And I had a, a instant dislike to them because they tortured me and hit me and because I was always in trouble because I was a bit rebellious, to be quite honest with you. So that was why I decided to fly me kite and come to England. I would add as well that the women that I interviewed as part of my work were just simply so unsatisfied with their lives in Ireland. Dr Sarah O'Brien is a cultural historian at Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. She casts light on why Mary Hazard and the thousands of other Irish women couldn't wait to leave home. These were times where women were so constrained in what they could do and where they could go and who they couldn't marry. They were so, I would say, enclosed in a way in their lives that they had this obvious desire that any of us would have had just to, to sort of flee. You know, we need to remember that. And I think the experience would have been very different for men and women in this regard because men had a much more public place in society, you know, in the, in the mid-20th century in Ireland. They had the pub, they had the GAA, they had, you know, the public space of, of markets and, and music and dance halls. And, and women were so constrained, really, within all of those spaces. Their, their physical ability to just traverse the landscape was just so much more circumscribed than men's and I think that really, really impacted on them. Mary had made up her mind to leave Ireland to answer a call put out by the newly formed UK National Health Service, which was recruiting thousands of women like her from all over Ireland to train as nurses. But going to England, the old foe, didn't quite impress everyone at home. Oh, my mother did not approve. She said, how can you even think of going to that Protestant country? Nobody goes to mess. And my father said, let her go, because I was on all that. He said, let her go. So eventually, through the help of one of my sisters, Betty, God rest her, she convinced her to let me go. And I got a plane from Collinstown Airport, which was outside Dublin. And I had £25 she put in my hand at the airport because she gave me a month. And there's your fare back home, she said. And I did think, my God, what have I done? But I think it was determination to teach, show my mother I could do it, that kept spurring me on because there was many times 
I felt like giving up, but something almost pushed me on. And I loved nursing anyway, but little did I know I was going from the frying pan into the fire. In another part of Ireland, Noreen, who had just turned 18, was coming to terms with the reality of having to leave Ireland and her family for very different reasons to become a nurse. When I was 18, I'd done my leaving certs in Ireland. That was 1960. And there was very little opportunity to do a lot in the country, really. There wasn't many jobs and things, so probably a lot of people at that time left Ireland. I wanted to become a nurse. My mother saw some advert in a newspaper where they were recruiting in Ireland to come over to England to do our student nurse training. And that's how I ended up at 18 years old um, in England to do my nurse training. Dr Jennifer Redmond, Assistant Professor of Irish History at Maynooth University, explains the logic behind Noreen's decision to go to the UK to train as a nurse. Most people in the period before free secondary school um, education came in in the 60s, you know, did not get the opportunity to train as high as even the Leaving Cert to be able to enter things like nursing. So England became a really important draw It wasn't to do with encouragement from Irish schools or the government or the church. The NHS was established on July 5th, 1948, and that created this huge demand for nurses. And nursing in Ireland was quite difficult to get into. You needed to have a leaving cert. You needed also to pay for your training. And then while you were training, you weren't paid. So your family, you know, if your family was a family that would have been dependent on your income, well, that's not going to happen while you're doing your training. And the complete opposite was um, true in England. Not every hospital would take a girl without her leaving cert, but enough of them would that thousands and thousands ended up going. And then, of course, they would pay for your uniform, they would pay for your lodgings and they would pay you a wage while you did your training. So it was incredibly attractive. I'm one of seven children and in Ireland we were small farmers and there were two things mainly. One, you had to pay to train to be a nurse in those days in Ireland. And secondly, it was very hard to get in anywhere because... Uh, places were at a premium unless you had somebody who worked in the hospital or somebody who could sort of help you through. So as I hadn't anybody like that in my family, I knew there was no way I could do my nurse training in Ireland. But I wanted some kind of profession um, because, you know, everything after that in Ireland you had to pay for. You know, and we weren't in that position to do it when there are seven of you to look after. So that's why, you know, luckily, luckily got um, accepted to come to England. Career options were also limited for Bernie in Ireland. In the 60s, there was a lack of choice and opportunity for women in particular. So I felt that there wasn't many other options available to me. She also cast some light on why so many Irish women like her were looking across the pond in search of a better life, including a better nurse training. There were schools of nursing locally, but some of them had a variable reputation. Certainly for me, I felt that, you know, sort of there was this lack of choice and and opportunity. And um, 
England seemed to have a better reputation as far as nurse training was concerned. From the perspective of an 18-year-old, the adventure was just about to begin. We had no fear. We were young, we were adventurous. Again, looking back, this was the time of our lives. My name is Ethel Cordoff and I came to the City General Hospital, Stoke-on-Trent, in 1964. Nursing wasn't high on her list of priorities when she decided to leave for England. I hadn't ever wanted to do nursing, actually. It was because I had worked in Ireland for seven years for little money and less prospects in three different jobs as a shop assistant. And my last employer would not raise my wages for even a pound a week, even though he said I had increased his business by 50%. And that was the turning point for me. I decided the very next day, literally overnight, that I would go to England and I would do nursing. But I had never wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to be a writer, but that wasn't really um, possible as a, as a job. But because accommodation was available and it would make migration easier, and I thought if it didn't work out, at least I was there and could do something else. But everyone was astonished at my news. It was said that... Nurses had always wanted to be a nurse, and this wasn't me. Ethel had to leave Ireland because she couldn't survive on her low income. She, along with others, were being shortchanged by the government of the day. Professor Jennifer Redmond explains. Well, there was an obsession, and it was largely driven by de Valera and Fianna Fáil, about rural life, about the importance of rural life um, and how that was somehow quintessentially Irish and should be preserved, even though people, by marching with their feet and leaving those rural places, were showing that they didn't actually want to live in such harsh conditions. But he's very famous for the uh, radio broadcast um, on St. Patrick's Day he did, which talked about frugal comfort and how basically Irish people should be more content with a simpler style of life, not materialistic. Um, That's not really realistic when people just cannot adequately feed and clothe themselves with large families, etc., So uh, some historians have seen the slowness of Fianna Fáil in particular to adapt to modern life and to try and reinvigorate rural areas with different kinds of employment as being the key really to why there was this continuous drain of young people. Annette and I'm from County Longford and I went over to England to train as a nurse in 1977. Before she too decided that England was her only option, Annette applied for nurse training at home but on the day of her interview she learned that applicants had to meet certain conditions to be considered for training. She takes up the story from here. I did try to get into a nursing school in Dublin but I uh, I wasn't successful, so I just thought I'd go on and um, try England. I think I wasn't that well prepared. It was probably my first proper interview. But one of the criteria was that you had to be 
five foot two. And one of the nursing officers on the panel asked me at one stage during the interview, how tall was I? And I said five foot. And I knew the criteria was five foot two. So I wondered, was that one of the reasons why I didn't get in? But I could have prepared better. I could have studied better for an interview, but there was nothing I could do about my height. So that was it. <laughs> and uh, it makes me smile now, uh, now that I'm over 60 and I think I'm still five foot. <laughs> and I did get into nursing. And it's just one of those probably quirky things that happened in Ireland or maybe happened in other places too. My name's Antoinette Connolly. I'm Feeney Connolly. So my maiden name was Antoinette Feeney and, uh, and got married and I'm a Connolly. And I was born in Castlemore, Balladreen, County Roscommon. Antoinette was reluctant to follow the thousands of Irish women flocking to England. She wanted to stay at home, but to train as a nurse in Ireland, it was necessary to travel up and down the country to interviews. It was at this juncture that she encountered problems getting to these interviews. And it's ironic that the more barriers she came upon in 1970s Ireland only served to clear the way directly to the UK and into the arms of its National Health Service. If I were to go for an interview now, we'll say down to the south, say down round um, Kerry or uh, Cork or up to Dublin, you'd kind of had to think, how do I get there? There wasn't much public transport, it wasn't easy to travel, it was expensive. There wasn't good direct links. Um, and then when you got there, you might not know anybody there. So now people have friends everywhere or a friend of a friend or they're contacting somebody on social media. Um, so it's so much easier. Honestly, it's so much easier for them now. Indeed, the NHS made it much easier for Antoinette to attend for interview. She didn't need to travel to the UK. They came to her. Professor Louise Ryan, Director of Global Diversities and Inequalities Research Centre in London Metropolitan University, describes how the NHS recruitment strategy was so effective. I think there's a number of factors. There's kind of a combination of what might be called push and pull factors, although that sometimes risks simplifying the situation. But we have to look at the fact that there was very active recruitment going on by the NHS. It was set up at the end of the 1940s, really needed a very large labour force as it was being rolled out across Britain, in particularly in the 1950s. And so there was an active recruitment of young women to come to Britain and to train within the NHS. So we can't ignore this active recruitment through newspaper advertisements, Many of the women I interviewed spoke about seeing an advertisement in like the Connacht Tribune, you know, the very local provincial press, then going to a local hotel where the recruiters would have come over from Britain and they'd be carrying out interviews over several days. And they were really looking to draw as many young women as they could and really targeting often quite remote rural areas as well. I remember one woman saying she went to a hotel in Ballinasloe where these interviews were taking place. So they weren't just going to Dublin or Cork. They were really going out into the countryside as well and recruiting. So that's a big part of the story. on a bus and straight to Putney Hospital which was a long way away and I went through Ealing and all sorts of places. hadn't got a clue where I was going but they knew I was coming. Arriving in London to begin her nurse training and a few days shy of her 18th birthday, Mary Hazard is starting a new life free of the constraints of authority she had left behind in Ireland. 
we had quite a few Irish girls. In a, there was 22 of us in our school. And we actually went to school in the nurse's home with a proper sister tutor. And we weren't allowed on the ward for three months. And in the, the nurse's home, we had a, a, a schoolroom with the bed. And she taught us in the classroom. And we were allowed on the ward one day a week to be supervised with bed making, which she taught us already how to turn the patient, how to prevent bed sores, which they don't do now. If you had a bed sore on my day, my God, it was horrendous. But all that's gone. I think we had the best of it, really. I know it was regimentated, but we got used to it. It was only a few short years since the end of World War Two and the birth of the NHS. Mary's nurse training in London had a certain military edge to it. Oh, Lord, regimented wasn't the word. Oh, yes, they they never called you by your Christian name. Why? I don't know. I suppose it was regimentation like the army. But if you were good, you got called nurse pal. <laughs> I think it's a pal do this or Murphy do that. Post-war restrictions were still in place in 1952, especially when it came to food in the hospital. When I started at Putney, we were still on rations. So we all had to line up every week with our little dish for our pats of butter and sugar. Oh yes, rations were still there. Noreen was starting a new chapter in her life in a different country, yet it still felt familiar. It was a Catholic hospital ran by the Daughters of the Cross in Cheam in Surrey. And there were a few people from Ireland, but not a lot. There were three of us, two other girls from Cork uh, came with me. I didn't know them beforehand, but I was told of them. And we travelled over together on a boat, which was a big adventure when you were 18 years old. And I come from a convent of mercy in Clonakilty. That's where I did my leaving certs. And then I came over here to a Catholic hospital. And it was very much like a continuation of school. You were looked after. There was home sisters that checked you in at night if you ever went out. And that was good in a way, because in 1961, an 18-year-old coming from Ireland, that's you know, 60 years ago, we were very naive. We had led very sheltered lives, really. So we were well looked after. Bernie was unprepared for the culture shock on arrival to Joyce Green Hospital, a 900-bed facility serving the east end of London. The, the you know, sort of very many shocks that I was very ill-prepared for. And I, I suppose many other young Irish women were equally poorly prepared for it. The culture shock, the language shock. I mean, I thought everybody spoke English. Uh, that wasn't my experience um, for where I went there. That I was left stunned at times. This culture shock was grounded on the first impressions of an 18-year-old girl's view of London's East End and its colourful form of the Queen's English language. My second or third day there, and you started off as an auxiliary before I went into uh, PTS, and you started off going around with the tea trolley. Even as simple as asking them, you know, sort of, do you take sugar? 
you know, so if you're talking about a lot of people, obviously, from the East End or that, I couldn't understand a word they were saying. The language, you know, the colloquial language seemed just so strange to me. That that, that was the first thing I'd come to terms with and, and listened very carefully because I couldn't even understand what they were saying. Antoinette started off in Birmingham in 1978 as a healthcare assistant before her nurse and midwife training. She also struggled with the local accent and the locals had trouble understanding her as well. It was really funny in the beginning because they didn't understand what I was saying because I would speak really fast and I didn't understand half of the what the black country accents like they'd ask to say like how been you our kid and I was thinking what on earth is that like how are you you know and it was they were so adorable they were absolutely lovely lovely but I would speak so fast they would say to me now slow down and say that again. Because we do speak fast at home, don't we? Annette travelled from Longford in 1978 to the Mildmay Mission and its sister hospital, the London, located in Whitechapel in the east end of the city. Two very different hospitals setting the scene for the rest of her nurse training and beyond. The Mildmay Mission is a small hospital, but a really lovely Christian hospital. And they train nurses and doctors to go out on the mission field, basically. It was only three wards. And so that's why the best part of my training was also at the London Hospital. So there was four in our group and we'd walk from the Mileme over to Whitechapel. And I remember the first morning going into the lecture theatre. I'd never seen a lecture theatre before. And it was this big, big, big auditorium and my little navy suit that my mother had bought me. And I was in my nice new shoes and I was all dressed to... (laughs) dressed up and when I got in there were 60 in our group and they were all in their jeans and their t-shirts and they were like obviously proper students but I just didn't know the etiquette at the time and I just thought oh well maybe I'm a bit overdressed but I'll know for tomorrow (laughs) and I was the only Irish girl I thought it was a bit unusual but I think I learned afterwards that some of the Irish girls went to to hospitals in North London more. While she was the only Irish nurse there, she wasn't alone. There was lots of girls from the home counties and and there was Filipino nurses and some from different parts of Africa. So there was lots of different cultures there. When I met other people from other parts of the world, you know, we had lots of things in common, (laughs) really. You know, that feeling of missing home, missing your normal food. Things like just your culture, I guess. And you could just share that with people and they did understand. The rank of ward sister at the London had special significance not seen in any of the other hospitals. The wards were named after a lot of the benefactors that had donated money to the London hospital to say Charrington or say it was a brewery. And then the sister was named after the ward name. She'd be Sister Charrington. So you knew her by the ward name rather than her own name. Ethel made a snap decision to go to England and train as a nurse. It wasn't her first choice. She wanted to be a writer. She describes her first impressions of Stoke-on-Trent deep in the heart of the UK Midlands. Welcome to the Potteries. Goodbye green fields, open spaces and local races. Clean air will be rare when I get there. Liverpool Station was a revelation. The journey via crew did not afford a good view. Stoke-on-Trent was my destination. Dingy red brick and grey, was this where I was to stay? 
The pottery chimneys bellowed dark smoke. It would almost make one choke. To inhale this air was more than I could bear. The people had a strange accent. Some vowels were absent. They called us duck without the pluck. One could walk for miles past factory sites, at least better than the bus, which windows were covered in industrial dust. The hospital was one of the biggest in England to cope with all the pottery and miners' ailments. Was this to be my lot? I thought not, but nursing made me stay. Trained, I would be on my way. You're listening to Angels of Mercy on Documentary on News Talk. Despite the austerity of the post-war years, including nightly curfews, Mary and the other nurses managed to have a social life of sorts, one that came with the territory. The Spencer Arms was the pub across the common. And we used to run over there and get the Merry Downsider. And there would be five of us sitting on a bed this way, with their backs to the wall, smoking fags, the gas fire on, in our little rooms, and all complaining about the terrible day we'd had, and who was horrible and who wasn't. And of course we used to climb through the window. In our days off we had to be in at 11 o'clock at night. And... uh, you fell out the window, didn't you? I fell in the bedroom window on top of the surgeon on the toilet. Mr. Stirk. And we had a girl, Jean, she was Irish. She, I think, was a nun. She was young, but she left it and came over and she was very holy. She always had a crucifix around her neck, a rosary. And Jean never went out at night, so we used to say, Jean, she was on the first floor and the nurse's home was downstairs with the big lounge and the telly. Telly had just come out. And we say, Jean, open the door for us, will you, if we throw stones up at the window. And the buses used to stop at 11, and we used to stand on Putney Bridge, thumbing a lift with our skirts up over our knees. Four of my friends married policemen. They came with the blue light flashing on the old car and say, you girls will get murdered. They'd bring us back, and even on motorbikes with sidecars, we got lifts. You know, there was nobody getting murdered or raped or anything in those days, no knife crime. There wasn't what there is now. I don't know, it was much freer. And you'd come home with the guy from the dance with no worry at all because you knew you were safe, sort of. We never went on our own anyway. We always in twos. An Irish dance hall in Hammersmith called the Garyone and I'd bring all the Dutch girls and there was English girls there and they had the old fiddles playing, all the Irish music. Oh, it was lovely. We had great fun in our time off, you know, and we enjoyed ourselves immensely. Noreen came from a rural part of Ireland where you had to travel some distance to the nearest major town to meet people and to socialise. Notwithstanding that, her view of the London social scene is somewhat understated. Well, I think I enjoyed the company and the... I just felt we were well looked after and I think there was more Irish than there would be anywhere else, probably in the other hospitals. And we were just on the outskirts of London and, yeah, we were always getting tickets to see different people, you know, and, but we used to go to them all. 
you know, I was better off because I probably had money for the first time, you know. I suppose I was too young to appreciate how, how lucky I was. The loneliness and the isolation of rural life she left behind in Ireland is brought into sharp focus. You'd see nobody. My brother is still in the same place. You know, you'd have to walk a few miles before you see the next farmer. You just didn't see people, really. It was just a very quiet life. In Ireland, very quiet. It was right out the country. You see, that's the difference, isn't it? But I don't know, you just didn't know any different. For Ethel, high tea was the order of the day in the 1960s Stoke-on-Trent social scene. Patience, grateful patience would invite you for afternoon tea. Now, yes, I went on a regular basis. Whenever I had a day off, I always had an afternoon tea to go to between about four different grateful patients. And um, one of the things that was always on the table was tin salmon. And, you know, I never ate tin salmon again after I left Stoke and Trent because I had so much tin salmon from grateful patients. Yes, it was nice because they were welcoming and it was somewhere to go when you were feeling a bit, a bit homesick. And on her day off, the hospital went the extra mile that gave a whole new meaning to the concept of work-life balance. We had a real nice perk. When you had a day off, you could have breakfast in bed, delivered to your room by one of the maids, a cooked breakfast. And you know, that was really special, you know, absolutely special. But there was lots of good things, you know. Yes, a lot of good things. All the camaraderie and the friendships made forever, really. Yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, further south for Bernie and her friends, the swinging 60s London social scene was so near and yet so far. The constraining factor was transport. I mean, none of us had any transport. We were a long way away um, from the centre of Dartford, where there was a train station. Um, so transport was very difficult, it was. So that. There was some social meetings and gatherings sort of in the hospital or that, but uh, it was very limited. I mean, we had a swimming pool there and that, that was one of the places where you know, we could meet, obviously, is out by the swimming pool. But we did occasionally get into London. How? I don't know. I can't remember. Obviously, there was the Irish night scene there which was the Galtie Moor was still um, on there. The National, I think, I think I, I remember going to that as well. But not very often did we get in, as I say, because obviously of um, the constraining factor, obviously, which was transport or that. Even though London could be seen as the ultimate social hub, it could be a very forbidding place, especially if you happen to be the only Irish girl in your nurse training class and isolated from your peer community. Annette casts some light on this. Up in Cricklewood, there was Irish clubs and things that you could have gone to. But because it was on my own, I didn't really want to go anywhere too much on my own. But I think with the shifts and things too, I was quite happy to stay home and just go to my room. Or, you know, I wasn't a real party person, if you know what I mean. Just on the other side of London from where Annette was staying, I was also living in a nurse's home. But the picture was very different where we were. I remember there were two Malaysian and three English girls living there as well, but the rest of us, we were all from every corner in Ireland. We worked hard and we played hard. And as a nurse, you see life, you see death and also everything in between. We worked 13 hour shifts day and night. And as soon as the weekend arrived, a gang of us would be on that number 74 bus, which stopped right outside the nurse's home and dropped us outside the door of the pub. 
And there we would meet the hundreds of other Irish people living in London and talking about home. It was a melting pot and it was boiling over. As an Irish person working in the UK during times of political tension, they would be the target of hostile comments and jokes. I can remember saying, oh, here comes the pikey brigade. I'd never even heard the word pikey. I'm allowed to use that word even or that. I'd never even heard it before. So I couldn't understand that, why I was being called that. Ethel also reflects on a similar circumstance, albeit with candour. The one thing I never really liked was about Irish jokes. Someone telling you an Irish joke because they think because you're Irish, you're going to like it. Now, that's one thing I never was into. It's not racist or anything, but I just thought, you know, it's like, it's, they're pretty stupid because most of the jokes were a lot about stupidity. <laughs> what I mean. Some of the nurses recalled moments where they as Irish citizens felt negatively typecast. Professor Louise Ryan explains why. Well, I'm very reminded of the phrase that Bronwyn Walter has coined in her book, Insiders and Outsiders. I think that's a brilliant way of explaining the positioning of Irish migrants in Britain. That on the one hand, Irish migrants are kind of seen as a bit like us. They're sort of insiders. The fact that we can come here and we don't need visas or work permits. And that's become even more apparent now in the context of Brexit, where everybody else needs a visa, but Irish people still do not need visas and work permits to come to Britain. And so that gives us a sort of a sense of, well, we're kind of like British people. But then in other ways, we're not because we are Irish citizens. We're not British citizens. Um, we are a former colony, so we have that historical link. We speak English in the main as a first language. So all of those similarities seem to make us seem like, I suppose, a soft target for jokes or stereotypes or for kind of making fun of our accents because we're, you know, we might as well be Scottish or Welsh. We're, we're a bit like other people. Uh, who are British, but we're just not quite the same. However, that means that we're not sort of then regarded as an ethnic group who deserves some sort of respect or who's protected by legislation around racism, for example, or discrimination, although we are, but it's not perceived that way. So people who might be very wary about saying something that was overtly racist against an Asian or an African person would probably feel no qualms at all about saying something about an Irish person. Even in a professional environment, I've heard people say things about Ireland, about Irish people, about a word I might pronounce in a particular way that they would never dream in a million years of saying out loud to a black person or an Asian person. And so it is that sense of we're kind of like them to such an extent that they feel able to say something insulting to us. 
but we're not so like them that we're equal. There's still that sense of us being a little bit less than an English person in the sense that maybe we're just a little bit more backward, a little bit more naive, a little bit more illogical. So those stereotypes play out in that way. And you see that repeated time and time again. And the nurses also talked about that right through the decades from the 40s and 50s through to the 70s and 80s. And even for me now, I've lived here for over 20 years and I work in a very professional environment. I'm still surprised to some extent when these things happen to me and they do still happen. So it is like we're sort of the soft target because we occupy this anomalous position as insiders, but also outsiders. Detectives examining the wreckage of a bus in which 11 people, including eight British soldiers, were killed this morning, believe a bomb of about 50 pounds was used. Police, of course, were quickly on the spot and one of their senior spokesmen told a Radio Birmingham reporter what he had seen. Um, a tremendous number of windows were blown in and a large number of people who'd been injured by flying glass and daybreak were staggering about. The position the bombs were placed in why do you think they were placed in that, those particular positions? Well, for maximum effect, without any doubt. Lord Mountbatten, his grandson, 14-year-old Nicholas Braeburn, and Paul Maxwell, age 15, of Derrickhara and Eskillen, County for Manor, were all killed today when their cruiser blew up just off the coast of Mullochmore, County Sligo. Tensions were running high between the two countries since the Northern Ireland Troubles began in 1969. Standing by now in a Birmingham studio, our reporter there, Barry Lenane. Barry, is Birmingham still very much in a state of shock this morning? Yes, there's a state of palpable shock here and a mood of great anger. And for the Irish community, it's causing great difficulties because the backlash against them has already started. The Birmingham bombings in 1974 was a watershed moment in the lives of the women in this story. Bernie recalls a moment early in her nursing career. I was... Um, in the West Midlands at the time of that, and whenever the Birmingham bombing, I mean, that was awful. Everything was anti-Irish at the time. Most nurses didn't really know how to deal with it, if you know what I mean. They just wa usually walked away. That's what I found as a, as a rule. Some people have said when they were on duty that sometimes remarks were made when bombs would go off. But I never had it. I never had it. When the, the bombs went off in Birmingham, I know that that a lot of Irish did feel, you know, a wee bit more conscious of their Irishness. Or, as I say, I can't really say that it happened to me. I think because it was, you know, you're so focused <laughs> on what you're doing. And it was just that you go on the ward, you were busy and you were doing tasks and busy, busy, busy. I, I wasn't afraid, obviously, for work or that, because normally... Um, you went out, you did your job and people were very grateful to you, whether you're you know, going out there giving them insulin because they're a diabetic or whether you were carrying out the end of life care. People were very grateful to you, you know, the individual patients were. But I certainly felt that I would restrict where I was going at the time. I definitely never tried to change my accent. 
I felt that people were certainly judging you by the way you spoke. But yeah, that's true. At that time, there were people that did find end up with situations where they felt didn't like to speak or be noted that they had an Irish accent. But I never had any problems. I'm blessed, really. After the the bombing campaigns, particularly I'm thinking of of the Birmingham bombings, Dr. Sarah O'Brien, there is an immediate linguistic, let's call it, effect for Irish women where they either adopt complete silence and they don't speak or they slowly begin to reconfigure their accents. It's quite extraordinary to bear witness to that as a researcher and as an oral historian. And one of the things that really strikes you if you are an oral historian of Irish immigration in Britain is the extent to which uh, women tend to have more of a British accent than men. And often women are vilified for that. They're seen to have sort of discarded their Irishness and taken on these British qualities. But of course, if you look at the context of these women's work in hospitals where they're meeting a British public that are extremely angry with them, and and the only identifier is their accent, then of course they're going to have to reconfigure their accents. Um, it was a survival mechanism. They absolutely had to do that. And they did it systematically, I would say. So um, changing the way they spoke was a really important survival method for them. Mary, Noreen, Bernie, Ethel, Annette and Antoinette, along with the scores of other Irish women, left Ireland at a very young age to train and work as nurses in England. Altogether, the women gave 266 years of service to the UK National Health Service. How was it for them? I never felt being hindered by the fact that I was Irish or even female. I would have found it very difficult if I had gone home to Ireland only because of the system, not the people or anything. I think the whole insurance and the the different covers that people have. We've never had to think of anything like that. In this country, anybody who turns up at the hospital door is treated the same, whether they're royalty or whatever. I just love the NHS. I think people don't appreciate how lucky we are. Annette remembers the Mild May Mission, her training school, and tells how she and her colleagues fought successfully to keep it open for a very special reason. Going back to the Mild May, they were trying to close it down because it was a small hospital. But we were very loyal to it. And I remember there was petitions marching and things going on to keep it open. That was about 1979, 1980. And, you know... I believe God is in control of everything, even in these uncertain times, God is still in control. And at that time, I think God had his hand on the mile because we were, you know, trying to keep it open. And But around the corner was the AIDS, HIV patients coming. And they didn't know then. I mean, I think there were patients maybe even in the London hospital that were presenting with these pneumonias and cancers and things young men and a few years later then they realized what it was it was this virus and if you remember people didn't want to even shake hands or be near there was a sort of and yet the mile may then became the hospital for patients with AIDS and HIV and would look after them and care for them 
and in those days a lot of them died you know not so much now but then there was a purpose for it we didn't even know that infection was coming and it's the same now that we're going to close it here and now they're taking the COVID patients and the homeless so it's just an interesting you know how what man proposes God disposes. There was a very caring component to the Irish nurses that was part of which endeared us to the ward sisters and the doctors but most of all to the patients we were you know we were a popular group we were but I think we earned our respect and we obviously as I said I think you know we did make a difference we did make a difference to the NHS they were lovely, honestly. Like, I, even from my faith, being a Catholic and everything, you could be truly yourself. I never felt different. I never felt a minority. I never felt undervalued. Nothing. I really have had... I could nothing but praise for every hospital I've been in and for the people I met. And beautiful. And they always respected who you were. There was never anything worried about people taking the because of your accent or anything. People loved it. They used to say, oh, we love your dulcet tones when we hear them in the hospital. And even to this day, they'll say that. It's, just, it's so lovely, honestly. They were amazing people. The Irish always fitted in. I didn't come across any anti-social behaviour between the Irish and the English, except for the sisters who were worse than the nuns, you know. But they were like disciplinarians, really. They were. Oh, I was always in trouble. So I, I enjoyed my nurses' training. There were moments when I thought, my God, what have I done? But there were only moments. Any regrets? I haven't any regrets, really. I loved... The nursing, I still loved it. I went on 60 years. I got um, a memento from the NHS. I don't know where it is. It was a glass paperweight for my services. And uh, I would do it all again. I loved it. And as a postscript, after a lifetime in nursing, Ethel has realised her long-held dream of being a writer with the publication of her first book entitled Ireland's Loss, Britain's Gain, From Nightingale to Millennium. Angels of Mercy was produced by Gráinne McPolan and funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland under the Sound and Vision Scheme.